1: hello i'm anna welcome to why the podcast that asks the big questions about science from nanotechnology to life in the furthest reaches of the universe imagine this you're driving on the motorway comfortably cruising at 70 miles per hour It's busy, but manageable. Suddenly, the massive haulage truck to your left catches your eye as it does a small swerve onto the hard shoulder, then overcorrects towards you. Your brain has milliseconds to assess the information your eyes are taking in, calculate potential evasive maneuvers, and choose one, the correct one. Every millisecond counts towards saving your life. The problem is what you think you're seeing isn't what's happening. Not right now, anyway. There's a time lag caused by the brain's need to process sensory information from the environment and integrate it into our consciousness before we can react through movement. This can be as long as half a second. So in order to calculate how to avoid the truck, your brain has to predict where the truck is now. It has to predict the present. But is that prediction always right? And are we experiencing what's really happening? or a version constructed by our brains. Today on Why, we're asking, can we trust our own eyes?
0: Perception is underdefined. There's multiple things that could exist in the outside world that create a particular pattern of light on the retina, and your brain has to face the challenge of trying to work out, trying to infer what's actually out there.
1: Dr. Hinza Hogendorn is Associate Professor at the Queensland University of Technology.
0: You know, in professional tennis, receivers can hit a ball that's going at about 200 kilometers an hour, which is mind-bogglingly fast. And at the same time, if you ever try hitting a fly in midair, flies move at like three kilometers an hour. But they're almost impossible to hit in midair because their trajectories are effectively random.
1: We're going to get straight in with it The first question i've got for you is really maybe one that's more about basic neuroscience so that our listeners can understand how some of the systems of the brain work so your research focuses on how the brain perceives the environment so in particular how the brain processes all those sensory inputs it receives from this environment that's constantly evolving and then it produces some sort of functional output so that might be in a movement or it might be an emotion and that means we can react effectively to that environment. Can you give me, though, just a really basic explanation of how this input-output system works?
0: Yes, absolutely. So my research focuses on exactly what you just said, sort of the input and output of the brain, but particularly how those things evolve over time. And especially because we don't, often we really think about it and notice it but our brain actually needs time to do the things that it does so when we open our eyes and we look at something that light hits our retina uh, our retina sends that information onto the brain and it gets processed from across various areas of the brain including up to the sort of decision making areas that might decide okay I see a kind of coke do I want to pick that up or not and then those decision areas make some sort of decision and then send that on to motor areas which might direct your arm to move over and grab it and then pick it up. And this is where a Coke is actually not a great example because it's sitting still, so there's no real time issue. But if you're playing tennis, for example, then your brain needs to identify where the ball is and direct your body to the right place to interact with the ball. But while your brain is doing all that, the world continues evolving. So things continue happening and the, that ball will continue moving. If you look out at the world, it seems like what we are seeing, that the, the experience we have of ourselves in the world is that we are seeing things as they evolve in real time. And the odd part of it is actually that that's not how it is. The that your visual system has, for example, are on the order of, say, conservatively estimated about 100 milliseconds. So say one-tenth of a second. But if you think of the speed at which professional tennis players can serve a ball in those 100 milliseconds, the ball will move three, four, five meters. So where your brain is seeing it, the most recent information it has about where the ball is is actually a long way away from where the thing is by the time you're doing the seeing. So you're, you're sort of looking at the past the whole time, and yet you're able to return this ball. You know We're able to cross busy traffic, and we're able to do all sorts of interesting things with fast-moving objects that we shouldn't really be able to do and so the fact that we do, I think, is re- we are able to do that, I think, is really interesting. And what well, my work focuses on, trying to figure out the tricks that the brain is pulling to allow us to do that.
1: So what I understand from what you've just said is that actually what we think we are seeing is a construct, possibly, that our brain has come up with to fill that gap between actually seeing the event and the sensory information actually processing itself. So we are looking at the past rather than the present.
0: Yeah, so that's a great question. And to be honest, I don't know necessarily what the brain is seeing at a given instant. The only thing that we know is that the brain only has access to outdated information. So it's biologically impossible to realize a system in which the brain would be representing something that's happening right now, because it takes time for the information about the right now to get to the brain. So it only knows what's out there a little bit later. Now, that doesn't mean it can't make educated guesses about what's actually happening in the present. And that's what I think is the, o- the only real possible solution. And I think that's what the brain is doing. I think we have a fair amount of evidence to suggest that it's doing. But it's an interesting question to try and work out what is it actually doing. And does it feed us its estimate of the present as if that is the present? Because we don't experience that we're looking out into a world of guesses. We experience that we see the world as if that's the world. But are we looking at the past or are we looking at the expected present? I guess is the question that we're trying to work out. And my current work suggests that yes, we see the expected present so we, we see the what the brain thinks is out there right now based on all the information and then when it gets information that either confirms or denies that, it either sort of you know checks that and verifies and validates it or it corrects it, its expectations and What I think is most interesting is that when those predictions seem to be wrong or turn out to be wrong, the memory traces we may ever have had of those failed predictions are gone. So we don't have memory traces of things that we expected but didn't happen. We end up remembering what actually happened because if you think about it, if you were to design a brain, why would you have it remember all the predictions that went wrong? It just remembers what actually happened.
1: I understand that a lot of the work not your work, but the work that's been done before on perception has always in a way looked at like one sensory input to see how the brain deals with that. But what you're saying is that's not a reflection of reality because we don't just get one sensory input. We get all the sensors coming together and then lots of different bits of the brain actually process those bits. So how do you study this perception problem?
0: Yeah, so it's a great problem. and I definitely don't want to downplay others' work. There's a lot of interesting work that's been done on multi-sensory perception. And actually, my work has primarily been unimodal, so it's been using the visual system uh, as a model system more than any other system. But the problems of those delays get more interesting when you consider multiple senses because the different sensory modalities have different timing properties. And different sensory information, the speed at which that information is processed, also differs. So if you have an event that has sound light, for example, then the sound of it tends to get processed more quickly than the light. Your brain doesn't need as much time to process sound as it needs to process visual information. So you can imagine that that creates a problem in your brain because the most up-to-date information it has about what it's been hearing is more recent than the most up-to-date information it has about what it's seeing. So it can't just take its most recent information and combine them because they don't belong together in time. So it has to sort of keep track of what was happening when and then try and align things in time as it as it becomes available. And that probably gets even more complex if you consider what ha- what's happening in the outside world because our brain may process sound more quickly, but when we are viewing a, an event that's happening far away, light information reaches us much more quickly. So if you have someone hitting a hammer or, or lightning striking or whatever, then, and it's a little bit further away, then this, the light reaches us more quickly than the sound. And so your brain is sort of fudge. What the delays are in the outside world and delays in the internal brain, if you will, and try and work out what things belong together. And it turns out that your brain actually has a fair amount of fudge factor. If it tries to make sense of what things probably go together, so things, objects striking each other, and visually, and loud clanging noises, it'll be happy to sort of bind those and understand those as belonging together, if, even if there's up to uh, you know up to two hundred milliseconds. Temporal misalignment between those two things—it'll sort of go. Yeah, no, those go together. And you might notice that if you're watching Netflix or you know on a bad connection, and you the sound is—and back in the day when you were, had to actually download movies and the file sometimes got corrupted and they got misaligned, then you might sometimes notice it. But in general, you'd be—you'd be sort of fine.
1: Okay. I mean, it sounds like the brain is doing an unbelievably complex thing. So, I mean, I am actually rubbish at catching balls, so I won't say it's an easy thing to do, but something as simple as catching a ball, there is so much going on because you've got neural delay, but you've also got this lack of synchrony between the different sensory inputs and outputs. So it's doing this amazing nightmarish jigsaw of trying to bring everything together so that you at least have some chance of catching that ball.
0: Absolutely. And it's incredibly complex computational problem. And it's additionally sort of complex because you tend to have only one go at it, right? And if you if that ball is coming at you, you have one go to get it right, and you've got you got the delays that are downstream from the brain. Because if you if the brain sends messages to your arm to move the arm, then it takes a while for the arms to move too. And so that has to compensate for delays that are in the future as well, namely those motor arm movement delays. And often it doesn't have full information. So it doesn't know. Well, the properties of you know the, how the ball will bounce or things like that, and that's why where things like curveballs and spin balls and things like that, where they show the fact that a curveball is hard to hit, or a, people, a tennis players put spin on a ball to make it bounce slightly differently than expected, kind of reveals that our brain is using all these predictive mechanisms to anticipate where things are going to go, and the fact that those things work as tricks to mislead the receiver kind of re- does reveal that that's what our brain is doing.
1: Okay, so the more unpredictable the movement's going to be, whether it's a curveball or whether it's like, I don't know, swatting a fly because they're a bit anarchic, let's face it, the harder it is to predict.
0: Yeah, the fly example is really interesting because, you know, in professional tennis, receivers can hit a ball that's going at about 200 kilometers an hour, which is mind-bogglingly fast. And at the same time, have you ever tried the hitting a fly in midair? Like flies move at like three kilometers an hour, which is, you know, it's like two orders of magnitude more slowly, but they're almost impossible to hit in midair because their trajectories are effectively random. So if you try to slap them, then not only will they go, probably move off in a a different direction than when you make the decision to try and catch them in midair, but if our theory about what your brain is showing you as the present is right then you're actually seeing the fly in a place where it isn't. So you're seeing it where the brain predicts it to be, but if that prediction is based on a, in a trajectory that's wrong or that's constantly changing, then you're seeing the fly in places where it might never be and never have been. And so then it's kind of a you know, no, small wonder that you can't hit it. But it is, nevertheless, I've, I find it an interesting comparison that a ball that moves 100 times as fast can be hit by, admittedly, a very skilled and trained person. But the fly that buzzes around your head in close proximity is really hard to get.
1: So if we're using, by the sounds of it, past experience to predict what we should be able to see, does that mean we engage the hippocampus in all this? So it's not just the sensory areas of the brain that are kicking off here, but the hippocampus where the site of memory, is that actually engaged as well?
0: Yeah, so it's a great question. And I haven't done any kind of localization work on the stuff that we do. So the hippocampus tends to be seen as the seat of episodic memory. So the episodic memory is the kind of memory that you remember the experience itself. So you remember what happened to your last birthday party or things like that. The kind of memories that we may expect to have be used to store... Procedural memory, so procedural memory is how you organize behavior, so how you do things, so how you ride a bike, and how you you know, will hop on one leg and things like that. Motor memory uh, is probably more likely to implicate the cerebellum, so the, the small brain in the back of the brain, which is strongly implicated in all sorts of timing properties and timing behavior and also timing dysfunction for people who have damaged the cerebellum. But I wouldn't feel confident that I have enough evidence to really implicate it in the kind of real-time alignment issues that we are facing. Because, I mean, for one thing, if cerebellum is involved in trying to understand where in time perceptual information belongs, then that means that additional delays need to be incurred to send that information to the cerebellum and back again. And I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that it does that. What I do think the cerebellum is strongly implicated in is coordinating the motor behavior that has to do with it. So compensating for the motor delays, I think it's a defensible position to sort of believe in that the cerebellum is probably involved in that. On the sensory side, I'm not so sure. And I think that may be more of a cerebral cortex kind of calculation that happens there. Although interestingly, on the sensory side, we find so sort of extrapolation as a mechanism, so sort of throwing things sort of forward in time, processes as early as the retina so it's even though your eyes are already predicting which is the first time I read that I found mind-blowing but your eyes are already sort of seeing if there's a moving thing coming across the screen then they are the cells that will receive the input in their position in the future are already being triggered by their neighbors to say hey get ready because stuff's coming and so they're able to respond more quickly and in anticipation of a moving object even before they actually see the moving object So your retina is already doing part of the job, and some of our recent evidence suggests it's actually doing a large part of the job of predicting for the delays that the rest of your brain is going to build up down the track.
1: That's fascinating. So actually, yeah, because I would imagine the prediction occurring somewhere terribly deep and complex in the brain, but you're actually saying it's the retina, is actually really key area of the brain that's predicting.
0: It starts that early. And I think this is one of our active areas of study right now is kind of, and tease apart the different kinds of predictions that you can make. There's a the simple prediction of, sort of saying, well, an object that's moving is very likely to continue moving on that same in a straight line in general, or on the same curve if you're spinning it around on a, on a string, for example. So, if you have a predictable trajectory, then it's quite easy to have a very simple, low level prediction about where it's going to be. And it's a little bit different to sort of say, well, John went into that room 10 minutes ago, so he'll probably come out again. That's more cognitive or I have, an, you know, I have an appointment with a dentist at some point that dentist, dentist is going to come out from his, his office and ask me in. So those higher-order predictions are probably not something that very low-level mechanisms like the retina will do. But those things about is an object that moves in a straight line, where is it now? That kind of prediction is probably something that earlier mechanisms might be able to do.
1: Is this way of explaining perception why we might get false memories or why we experience what's known as déjà vu?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I've never done any research on deja vu, but the false memories work. I I think is is really really interesting. And what I, I've argued before is sort of the counterintuitive idea that perception may not be so different from memory. And we tend to think of perception as you know seeing what's out there in the world right now, and memory as remembering what was out there in the past. But the fact that there is no single delay from world to brain, and that we have there's lots of experiments that show that on a range of time scales, you can show people stuff that affects their perception of earlier things. We're talking so far about prediction. There's also a phenomenon called postdiction, where our perception of the past changes based on what is shown after, which just doesn't make sense in the in the in the intuitive way of thinking about how perception works. So you have to allow the brain to sort of go back in time to change our perception now that sounds metaphysical right nobody can go back in time but the thing is the brain doesn't go back in time to change what you saw back then it changes what you remember now of having seen then it doesn't break physics it's just overriding memories
1: We've heard that the brain constructs a version of reality for us, starting as early as within our retina. We don't have time to process all of what's happening in front of us, so our brain presents a helpful option. Part of the research on this topic states that the theory requires the integration of three timelines. The timing of the event, the neural reaction to the event, and the time the person perceives the event to have occurred. The last is subjective. Is this why when we recall something, we might all differ in our understanding of when and how it occurred? Well, we all make different predictions.
0: That's right, so it's, it's one of those funny situations where our intuition about time and our intuition about perception turn out just simply to not, to not work. And so you have to accept things that seem very counterintuitive, that as you said, there are three timelines that we have to reconcile, right? There's the outside world which in which things evolve and things happen. So a ball might bounce and then roll off the table or, or whatever. Then there's the brain, which has its own timeline of when information reaches certain stages in the brain's processing. Now, the brain operates on that same timeline, operates on the world timeline, but because of those delays, the visual input of the ball falling off the table will probably get processed in the brain somewhat later because it takes time to get there. And then the third thing is, there, is the, as you said, the subjective experience. That's the, the experience that we have in our memory of when that thing happened. And we tend to confuse the latter with the first and think that it draws upon the second. So I think for a long time, people assumed, neuroscience people assumed that the timing of when the processing happened in the brain was probably used to infer when the actual event happened. So if, if, if the event was processed later, it probably happened later. And a whole host of experiments have shown that that's not true. Like, you can have uh, two events that happen at the same time, but event A might be processed more quickly, but actually get experienced as happening later, and vice versa. So, there's three timelines um, that sort of turn out to be important the timeline of when things have happened in the world. So, that's you know, world time when a ball falls off the table or, or whatever, and then there's the timing of the neural processing of that event being detected. So our eyes see the ball fall off the table; they send the information to the brain, and so the brain exists in the physical world, and so it processes the, that information at a certain time, but not at the same time because the brain only has access to information just a little bit later. Then the third timeline is the timeline of when we experience the ball to have fallen. So. The subjective when, so uh, the experience of when that happened. So, a lot of people I think will have assumed that our experience of when something happened depends on when that information was processed, even sort of in the neuroscience field. But there's lots of experiments that show that that's not the case, that it's part of the information that the brain has about inferring when something happened, but it's not the only information it has. And there's lots of examples where something might happen later in the world and then be processed either earlier or later than the second event and also be be perceived as being earlier or later, totally sort of dissociable from when it was actually detected. So the timing of an event in the world, the timing of the processing of that event, and the experience of the timing of that event, all those three things are are separable and have been separated in the lab.
1: One of the things that's occurring to me is some of us, I'm assuming, are better at these predictions than others. So is there an individual difference in in our brains? Because, for example, I am literally awful. At catching balls like compared to even my children so is it because i'm just not as good i mean put to one side the motor coordination but that i'm just not as good at predicting where it might be
0: it's a really interesting question because it's a chicken and egg question right so there's a number of studies that have been investigated very experienced ball sport players so baseball players cricket players um try to see whether they are better predictors on other tasks and mean, obviously they'll be better at their sport than most people but whether they are better predictors in, in, measured in other ways and they do they do tend to be but very narrowly defined around their sport this the chicken and egg question is whether there's natural variation in the population between people in, in their skill at predicting and that makes people who are good at predicting become more likely to be successful professional sportsmen or women or whether people who go down the whole professional sports track end up with so much experience that they predict in a slightly different way than other people and that makes them better across the board and we have no idea it's hard to do the experiments because you can't just pick a number of random people and assign them you're going to be a sports player you're not what we do know is that they do make slightly different prediction i guess strategies so one of the things that that has been done uh, has been throwing Cricket balls at professional cricketers and measuring their eye movements to see where they look along the trajectory of the expected incoming ball, and they look, they make eye movements to points that are further ahead on the trajectory than than amateur cricket players do when they're receiving uh, balls. So they're receiving balls flying at them. So the experience, lots of experience with those uh, with those moving objects, does change people's prediction habits. Whether that. You know, the degree to which that generalizes in a useful way to other domains is, is, isn't really an open question. And you do see that it's something that you, you have to pick up and can pick up. I mean, you mentioned children. If you look at young children trying to even catch a ball that rolls slowly past them, they'll jump after it repeatedly and miss it each time. So that, that prediction mechanism definitely hasn't built up yet.
1: Just one last question. So if the brain is going back and re-editing things when it realizes it hasn't done such a great job of predicting, is this why... Over time, our feelings or our interpretation of an event can change, maybe with more experience in life.
0: Yeah. So I wouldn't consider myself an expert on emotion neuroscience at all, but at at the perceptual level, then definitely. So one of the things we don't often think about in terms of perception is that most of the time, perception is underdefined. There's multiple things that could exist in the outside world that create a particular pattern of light on the retina. And your brain has to face the challenge of trying to work out, trying to infer what's actually out there. And so it has to fill in the gaps and sort of use noisy information and make a best guess all the time. And it happens frequently that more information about that might become available later so your brain sort of adds that to the past and either confirms that or reinterprets it or adjusts that or alters that and if that happens on a perceptual level and can happen you know even further back then there's no reason why that couldn't happen with the emotional consequences attached to that particular perception so if you're in a jungle and you sort of see a flash of movement behind you and then you turn your head but there's nothing really there and then you take four more steps, and then you hear something that sounds like a tiger, then your brain probably goes back in time and goes, wait, that flash of movement might have been that tiger, and that makes that flash of movement retroactively more scary. I would totally be sympathetic to the idea that your brain can go back in time, change the interpretation of past sensory experiences, and therefore also the emotional loads that are associated with those things.
1: we can't trust our eyes to see what's happening in the moment, but our retina does a pretty decent job of predicting the present, to keep us safe and help us move through the world. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Dr. Hinza Hugendorn. No problem at all. We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition, and follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Anna Machen asking why see you next time
0: why was written and presented by Anna Machen the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me Jade Bailey the managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison artwork is by Jim Parrott and our theme music is by DJ Food why is a Podmasters production (laughs)